In 2007, I did something that uh, I both am so glad I did and uh, at the time regretted it so much. Uh, I went mountain climbing for the first and only time. And when I say mountain climbing, I mean mountain climbing. Uh, I went with a group of young people to uh, Colorado and we climbed Mount Albert. Now, you may not know anything about Mount Albert, but Mount, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but Albert, Albert, uh, but it is the largest, highest mountain in Colorado, second highest mountain in the lower 48. Uh, it's over 14,000 feet, which means almost three miles high. And, and to say that the air gets thin at the top is an understatement. When I was registering to go up the mountain, the lady looked at me and she said, you're going up the mountain? And I said, yes, ma'am, why? And she said, well, we don't generally get people your age going up to the mountain. Now, y'all, that was 13 years ago. I was in my 40s. I thought I was, you know, at the peak of my life. I found out very quickly I was not, that the peak had passed about 20 years earlier. Uh, but we summited uh, Mount Elbert, and I'll never forget being on the top of this mountain. There were three guys who had also summited about the time we got there, about 12.30 uh, in the afternoon. And, and one of them, I, I struck up a conversation. One was from Boston, one was from Philadelphia, and one was from New York. And I said, well, what are y'all doing out here? And they said, well, we came out here to climb Mount Elbert. And I'm like, really? You drove, you, I mean, y'all flew all the way from those cities. They said, yeah, we try to go mountain climbing once a year somewhere, and we wanted to conquer Mount Elbert. And I said, well, interesting. You know, this is the first time I've ever gone mountain climbing. And they looked at me, and they said, you're kidding me. And I said, no, why? And you chose this one to be your first one? And I'm like, well, I didn't choose it. It's just the one we came up. Now, from Mount Elbert, here's what's amazing. You could see everywhere. I mean, literally, you could see everywhere. I mean, here you are, the second highest point in the lower 48. And whether you look to the north, the south, the east, the west, you're above the clouds. The clouds are below you. And you're just looking out, and it was just absolutely unbelievable to, to realize, you know, you're on the highest peak in the entire, you know, state of Colorado, second highest in the nation. In many ways, I feel the same way I felt then in today's lesson. We've been doing this lesson called His Story, this series of lessons. And we come to a text today that in many ways are, is the highest peak of Scripture. I mean, on the text we're looking at today, you can look backwards throughout the Old Testament and see everything pointing to it. And then you can look the other direction and look down the future of history itself and realize that everything's going to look back to it. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, summarizes the story of Jesus in this very simple verse in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I resolve to know nothing. Boy, listen to the text. For I resolve to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and Him crucified. There it is. There it is in as simple a form 
as you'll find it in all of Scripture. Paul, as he's writing this, is dealing of all things with division in the church at Corinth. And and he'd come down literally to who had baptized you. I mean, they were dividing over who had baptized them. Some saying, well, Paul baptized me. Others saying, well, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. And it was because of their favoritism that they were like, look who baptized me. Paul comes to that subject of baptism in the previous chapter and he says, listen, let me tell you something. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now that sometimes causes us to pause and go, wait a minute. Jesus commanded all Christians to go teach and baptize. Paul, what do you mean Jesus didn't send you to baptize? All Paul is saying is, baptism is not the most important thing when it comes to our relationship with God. Well, we need to hear that message. Is baptism important? Absolutely. Commanded? Absolutely. But notice what Paul says here. He sent me to preach the gospel. Well, I thought baptism is part of the gospel. It is a response to the gospel. We'll talk about that more here in just a moment. But he says, God sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ. There it is. I mean, you've got this incredible parody taking place, this contradiction of terms, of where Paul says, can I tell you the good news? It's about a cross. And whether it was back then or today, crosses were not generally known as good news. But when it came to the Christ, it was. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And watch what Paul goes on to say. For the message... Of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, one of the mistakes I think we sometimes make is that we do think sometimes that it's our ability, our talent to study with, to teach, that leads people to obey the gospel. And if there's a message that comes out of this text today, it is that the power of the gospel is in the story of the cross. If you want to draw people to Jesus, then lift Jesus up. It's not our abilities to argue. It's not our abilities to make, you know, logical syllogisms. It's not our abilities to convince people. It is simply our ability to tell the story of the cross that draws people to Jesus. Paul would go on to say, we preach Christ crucified. There it is. He says, of course, it's a stumbling block to Jews. They wouldn't have killed him otherwise. It's foolishness to Gentiles. A crucified king? Come on, who believes in that? But he says, both to those whom God hath called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Power and wisdom. The wisdom part simply tells you that God is doing something. When Jesus died on the cross, something was happening powerfully. Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he'll preach the cross. I mean, that's what the message is. And notice what he says here in Acts 2.23. Right as he's beginning to preach this 
first of the gospel sermons, of the good news. He says, this man, talking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now he goes on to say, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But the point that Paul makes is, this was God's deliberate plan. You know, we sometimes talk about the plan of salvation. Y'all, that is the plan of salvation. Here is the plan of salvation. I mean, here is Jesus as, as he is literally going into Jerusalem and he's turning to the apostles and he's telling them what's fixing to happen. Now, it's going to go over their heads. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, none of them hear this. None of them understand this. I mean, they've already got in their mind what the Messiah is, is supposed to do and what he's supposed to become, and this is not part of the plan in their minds. But look at what Jesus says. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, a term that he applied to himself, the Son of Man, he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests, to the teachers of the law, and they're going to condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. That is God's plan. Now, I know oftentimes we have these little sheets that we pass out. Here's God's plan of salvation. But I sometimes think we get the the, the cart in front of the horse. God's plan of salvation is this message right here. That's how God redeemed us back to himself. Our response is oftentimes what we call the plan of salvation. But it's actually our response to the plan of salvation, which is to decide whether or not we believe this. Paul says some of the Jews didn't. It was a stumbling block. He says some of the Gentiles didn't because it was foolishness. But we have to decide, are we going to believe it or not? And if we believe it, is is that story going to be powerful enough that it causes us to say, wow, God would do that for me? I want to repent, therefore, and turn and follow Him. And, of course, that's where baptism comes into play. Is baptism part of our response? Absolutely. But you never elevate the response above the message of the cross. It's the message of the cross that causes people to respond. And that's what Paul wanted to get across and what Peter wanted to get across to his audiences. You know, when you think about what happened at Calvary, just prior and and then at Calvary itself, it's one of those things that just... It it kind of forces you to think over and over and deeper and deeper. Here's Luke's account of Gethsemane. And I want you to listen to it. Listen to it afresh. He withdrew about a stone's throw. This is from Peter, James, and John. Knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then Luke tells us something that Matthew, Mark, and John don't. Luke says that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, an angel from God comes. I don't know if it was Michael. I don't know if it was Gabriel. I don't know which angel it was. But an angel appears. Why? Because the Son of God needs help. I want you to think about that. Whatever Jesus is going through is literally draining him of his strength. 
Look at the next phrase there. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Do you remember what time of year it was when Jesus died? It was in the spring. It was late March, early April. Later that night, Peter will literally follow them after they arrest Jesus. He'll follow them into the courtyard of the high priest and he'll warm himself as a, at a fire. Why? Because it's cold outside. Blake talked about it being, you know, 58. I suspect it was much cooler than that that night. And yet here is the Son of God sweating as it was, drops of blood. Why? Not because he's hot, but because he's in anguish. Hebrew writer would describe it this way. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Listen to the language. Fervent cry and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And then I want you to listen to something carefully. We oftentimes miss it. Son though he was... He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What? Once made perfect. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was perfect from beginning to end. He was. So why does the Hebrew writer say once made perfect? It's as if he wasn't perfect before. The word perfect there carries another meaning to it. That word carries the idea of maturity and completion, finishing the job that you're given. Once made perfect, once he completed the job, in the words of Jesus himself, it is finished. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Paul would restate it this way. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient. But notice that word obedient. It's obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so I ask a simple question. What happened to Calvary? You know, the Gospels don't go into the gruesome details of Jesus' crucifixion. When you turn to the Gospels, they're very simple. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. There it is. They crucified him. You see, I, I think probably in the first century, everybody knew what that meant. I suspect everybody had witnessed it over and over and over again. The Romans had a way of demonstrating to people that they were trying to control that if you don't allow us to be the boss, you end up on a cross. And so they knew what to, to be crucified was all about. It took, however, Mel Gibson to teach us that. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen Passion of the Christ? good number of you have. I remember when that movie came out, uh, the church I was at, we bought a big block of tickets. We went to 100 Oaks to the theater down there. It's one of the few places we could get tickets. And we carried, I don't know how many, maybe 40, 50 from the church I was at. And I still remember when that movie was playing how quiet everything was. And then what stunned me most was how quiet it was at the end of the movie. Not a word was said in the theater. Nothing. I think people were in shock. I think people absolutely couldn't believe what their eyes had just witnessed. And I still remember people getting up quietly and falling out of the theater and walking down the hall. And it was eerie because it was just total silence. As people were trying to process what had we just witnessed. 
And here's the point I want you to realize, is what we saw on the film was only a physical demonstration of what took place. Didn't even touch the spiritual aspect of it. And so we ask the question, what happened at Calvary? And when you come to the New Testament and you ask that question, and by the way, theologians have been debating this for the last 2,000 years. What took place that day? And what you find in the Gospels, in, in, the, in the epistles of Paul, is you find an effort to give a glimpse of what took place, recognizing that there's no way to figure out exactly what took place. You know, when you ask a child in, you know, first, second, third, and fourth grade, why did Jesus die on the cross? They've got the answer. We've taught them well. He died for our sins. And you know, at a very basic level, that is so true. But still the question has to be asked, but why? Why did it take that? And so what you find in Scripture is you find the writers just trying to find something to give a glimpse into what took place. You turn over to John. John, he he took the idea of sacrifice. When he saw Jesus in John chapter 1, this is John the Baptist, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, in a world where sacrifice was just an everyday occurrence at the temple, the concept of a lamb, this idea of taking something else and substituting it for us, let its blood pay the price for our sins, that was a very part of their life, everyday life. Isaiah would say, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jeff, in the comments this morning, quoting from 1 John about God's love and how Jesus was made an atoning sacrifice for us. That mirrors what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Jeff. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now again, we read that and we don't get the picture. You see, the day of atonement was the high and holiest day of ancient Israel. It was the day where they would take two goats They would cast lots. They would bring them to the high priest. The high priest would kill one of them, take its blood, and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, making atonement for sin. He would take the other goat, he would place his hands on his head, and he would symbolically, perhaps even spiritually, transfer the sins of all of Israel onto that one goat. And then they would take it out, known as the scapegoat, and they would turn it loose so that it would take our sins far, far away. And Paul says Jesus is both. He's the one who sheds the blood, and he's the one who goes far, far away and carries our sins away from us. Paul would come with another concept quite different from that of sacrifice. Notice here, he would pick up the theme of redemption. But much like sacrifice, where the forgiveness comes through the blood, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption was a concept about being set free when you're a slave. Again, when we think of redemption, we think of taking coupons to the grocery store, right? I mean, I need to redeem this coupon. In the first century, that's not what redemption was. Redemption was the ability to take money and pay to an owner and him to finally set a slave free. And it was very common in the first century because oftentimes in the first century, if you were in debt, you didn't simply stay in debt, you became someone else's 
bondservant until the redemption price had been paid. I mean, if we went around the room this morning and said, everybody that has a credit card debt, would you raise your hand? A lot of us would need redemption, right? Jesus would take this very term in John chapter 8. He would say to the Jews who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then here's the key part. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. That upset them. They responded by saying, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say you're going to set us free? And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins needs redemption. Isn't that true? Isn't sin one of those things that gets hold of us and it's so hard to get rid of it? All of us struggle with it. All of us have those sins that Satan just constantly throws at us to try to enslave us. And Jesus said, I've come to set you free of that once and for all. And then finally, Paul uses a third term called justification. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood. Justification has to do with, with a court scene. has to do with us being guilty of a crime we've committed. And we come before a judge, and in standing before the judge, he declares us either innocent or guilty. And of course, we know we're all guilty. And yet, here in this text, we've been made, or been, been declared justified by his blood. I want you to think about that for a moment. All you have to do is watch the news. Go online and read story after story of people who've convi been convicted. Been convicted how? By blood. Blood at the scene of the crime. Blood that matches, you know, both the victim and the perpetrator of the crime. And yet here is Paul saying, it's not the blood that condemns us, it's the blood that sets us free, that declares us innocent. 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Judgment day is coming. What helped me more with this text than anything else was a very difficult time in my life. As many of you know, I lost an older brother when I was a senior in high school. My older brother Rex died in an airplane crash. Devastated our family. Traumatized me. I struggled with that for years. When I, when I was in high school years ago, they didn't know how to help teenagers process grief. Nobody was there to talk to me. I mean, I was just left to deal with it on my own. And I remember that it took years, years and years and years. And I still remember when I was probably in my 30s, I was out praying one day, walking, and, and I was deeply depressed. And I said, God, why did you take my brother Rex away? Why did you take my older brother and it's the closest thing to ever hearing God audibly speak to me. I didn't hear anything, but boy, it's the closest thing to it. As it came into my mind, God saying, Les, you still have an older brother. You've always had an older brother. Ever since you went down into the water, you've had an older brother, and his name is Jesus. And it was that thought that finally clicked in my head 
Because I realize that when I go before Jesus, it's not like me going before someone I don't know, but it's like me going into a courtroom and looking up, and in the judgment seat is my brother Rex. He's the one who is my judge. And seeing him, and him saying, Les, how have you how are you doing? It's been so long. And, and in so many ways, I thought, wow, what comfort that would bring me. And yet it's the same comfort we have in Jesus. He is our older brother. When we walk into the court, he says, my blood covered him. He's okay. He's justified. Just glimpses. Sacrifice. Redemption justification. We could go with several others that New Testament writers use. But Paul would summarize it perhaps best this way. What is our response to Calvary? We too have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I've been crucified with him. And in the book of Romans, he would tell us how and when that happened. He says, or don't you know that all of us, notice the term there, all of us, me included, Paul says, all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live Hey, you." Life, Christ living in us. And so I simply ask the question, are you ready to pick up your cross and follow him? For that is what he calls you to do. Again, we, we're not extending the invitation to allow for social distancing, but the invitation is always available. If you have any need, I'm down front following services. Brother Mike Ryan, Rod is here, two of our shepherds uh, up in the balconies. If you have a need, please come to us. We'll pray for you. We'll baptize you into Christ, whatever you need. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing one more song, hopefully a song that you'll take home with you this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his name.